Hey, this is Andy Lucas, pastor of Emmaus Road Church in Fort Collins, Colorado. Thanks for listening to our podcast. We hope this message helps you grow in your walk with Christ. If you'd like to support this ministry, visit theroadfc.org and click the giving link. Today marks the final week in our series through the Psalms for the summer. And uh, each summer, right in the dead of summer, June, July, uh, dead of summer, that sounds awful. So right in the middle of summer, uh, we, we turn our attention to either the Proverbs or the Psalms. And we do that because we want to make sure that uh, we are, have dedicated opportunities to just uh, learn and glean wisdom from these books, from these wisdom books, uh, these books of poetry, uh, because if, if we don't do that and build it into our regular rhythms, uh, I think these books right in the middle of the Bible uh, are really easy to just ignore. Uh, and so we, we don't want to do that. We want to turn our attention. And so each summer we take uh, just a few weeks to, uh, to look at the Psalms or the Proverbs. Uh, I want to also just say right here at the beginning, uh, a thank you to Rick Edwards who uh, filled in for the past couple of weeks, did a great job speaking to us uh, from Psalm 4 and 5. Uh, and I can tell you as a preacher, uh, preaching from the Psalms is not easy. And uh, Rick did a great job. So thank you, Rick, uh, for filling in. Uh, One of the keys to understanding the Psalms, as we've been talking about, is entering into the world of the Psalms and and taking a look around to see what the world uh, that this Psalm is presenting is really like. And and broadly speaking, what we've learned is that the the world of the Psalms can be described as either a Psalm of orientation, uh, where the world that it's presenting is well-ordered, it's predictable, it's full of blessing and goodness, Uh, Or a psalm of disorientation is being presented to us where the psalmist appears to be uh, in the middle of a world that is chaotic and unpredictable, thus bringing confusion, pain, and even disappointment. And then we also have psalms uh, of new orientation or reorientation. And and these are the psalms where uh, the world that is presented to us is a world that we learn of God's propensity to bring light from darkness, to bring order from chaos, and his, his... propensity to make all things new. And and we've really done our best uh, over the course of this series to enter into the world of David the psalmist. And as we have done so, we have learned about, uh, we've gained wisdom about how to pray and how to engage with God in times of disorientation. We've learned about the importance of our own speech and talk with one another. And we've also learned about the character of who God is. And so today, as we enter the world of the psalms once more, Uh, We're going to enter the world uh, of of Psalm 6. And entering into these psalms is a bit like Wonder Woman uh, entering London for the very first time and having to learn all about this brave new world, right? Uh, Or like Steve, the soldier who happens upon the island of Themyscira and meets Wonder Woman for the first time. Uh, Some of you know what I'm talking about. Others of you don't. That's okay. Uh, But I I say that to say that there is certainly some familiarity to the worlds in which we enter when we enter the world of the Psalms, but uh, but in in many ways, the world in which we encounter is so different from our own. We might also say it's kind of like Meg Murray traveling to Kamazots to rescue her father, who's excited about a wrinkle in time. One of you is excited about a wrinkle in time. That is so sad. Two of you. Excellent. I see that hand in the back. Amen. Uh, Let's all bow our heads and pray. Just kidding. Uh, So uh, we're going to enter into the world of Psalm 6. This, like many of the poems that we have been uh, in in these first few uh, poems uh, of the Psalms, is a psalm of disorientation and lament. And I think that will become apparently obvious. But uh, let's uh, look at Psalm 6 together. I want to read it in its entirety, uh, all 10 verses. It says this, Lord, do not rebuke me in your anger 
or discipline me in your wrath. Have mercy on me, Lord, for I am faint. Heal me, Lord, for my bones are in agony. My soul is in deep anguish. How long, Lord? How long? Turn, Lord, and deliver me. Save me because of your unfailing love. Among the dead, no one proclaims your name. Who praises you from the grave? I am worn out from my groaning. All night long, I flooded my bed with weeping, and I drenched my couch with tears. My eyes grow weak with sorrow, and they fail because of all of my foes. Away from me, all you who do evil, for the Lord has heard my weeping. The Lord has heard my cry for mercy. The Lord accepts my prayer, and all my enemies will be overwhelmed with shame and anguish, and they will turn back and suddenly be put to shame. Uh, It's immediate from the very beginning, as soon as you read this psalm, that this is, in fact, a psalm of lament. It's a psalm of disorientation. Uh, The world in which this psalmist is living is, is one of pain, confusion, in fact, the signs of lament are all apparent. In verse 2 and 3, he, he calls out for mercy because he is faint. He cries out for healing because he says his very bones are in agony. And then he also says his soul is in deep anguish. And so he cries out to the Lord and asks the question that maybe you have asked at some point in your life. How long, Lord? How long? Many scholars, as they look at, the psalm, at this psalm, Psalm 6, they believe that what the psalmist is going through, what David is going through as he writes this, is, is actually a physical illness. And, and of course, we could, we, could take these, uh, we could take these conditions and, and uh, apply them metaphorically to our lives, that the, instead of bones being in agony, being my bones are aching and they physically hurt, we could, of course, understand that metaphorically and say that in the times of, of difficulty or pain or suffering, that to the core of who we are, we're in anguish. But, but many uh, scholars agree that for this, for the psalmist, it's actually quite literal. He is sick. He is sick. The signs of lament continue later on in the psalm. Verses, uh, in verse 6 alone, he says, I am worn out from my groaning. I flood my bed with weeping. A literal translation here would be, my bed is swimming. <laughs> and he says, my couch is drenched with tears. Uh, it's interesting, all of that is in verse 6. I'm worn out from groaning. My, blood, my, my bed is, is flooded from weeping. My couch is drenched with tears. It's interesting, isn't it, that no one ever has picked Psalm 6-6 on a bumper sticker or a frig- refrigerator magnet. <laughs> Uh, you, when you ask someone, what is your life verse? No one has ever said Psalm 6-6. <laughs> but what's even more interesting to me is that alongside of these descriptions of illness and lament, there are themes like God's anger and wrath or the presence of enemies and the lack of praise that comes from the dead. And if you're anything like me, as we were, as we were reading it together and as I was studying it this week, to me it all seemed just a little bit disconnected. Uh, like, I, I could connect the, 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 the signs of lament and, and the, the physical illness and, and how the, the scholars have come to believe that really he is physically sick, that we're not just entering a metaphorical world. Um, but it all seems a bit disconnected. It's a little bit like entering this world where you find um, a ring. 
And a ring is, is familiar, and you can kind of get a handle on that and make sense of that. But as you look a little bit closer at the ring, uh, there's an inscription on the inside. And then alongside or right by this ring with an inscription on the inside, there's a broken blade. And then a small bottle known as star glass and a large book inscribed with Maserbull. Lord of the Rings fans unite, right? <laughs> And you sense that maybe all of these relics are in some way connected, but you don't really know how. And so you have to enter into a brand new world to see the connection between these things that seem on the surface that they're not connected at all. And so the question before us in Psalm chapter 6 is, is really, what does God's anger and wrath, the presence of enemies, and silence after death have to do with the laments of one who is sick? And in order to answer that question, again, we must fully enter into this world. And it helps us to understand that in the ancient mind, illness was a sign of God's anger. In the, according to the ancient mind, illness was a sign of God's anger. If you, were, if you were sick or afflicted, it was because they understood, it was because that God was, was punishing you and pouring out his anger against you. Now, as we hear this, this may sound very primitive to our ears because now uh, with, with, all the tech, with all the advances in technology and science, we of course know that illness comes from preschoolers <laughs> or bacteria or germs and infection. But in the world of the psalmist, God was understood to be the source of all things that come to us, whether for good or for ill. And before we give a gigantic eye roll to our ancient brothers and sisters, you should know a couple of things. First is that this viewpoint that, that all things that come to us in life are direct from the hand of God, whether they be for good or for ill. This viewpoint, this, this framework, this understanding of life was born out of obedience to the very first commandment, that you shall have no other gods before me. Because again, in the ancient mindset, there was a God for everything. There was uh, the God of the sun who made the sun rise and fall out of the sky each day. There was a God of fertility that allowed you to have children. There was a God of harvest. And, and any hardship or, uh, or any affliction was evidence that that God was angry. And so if your, harvest, if your harvest was not plentiful that year, then it was evidence that the God of the harvest was somehow angry at you and punishing you. This was the, the mindset of our ancient brothers and sisters. And so accepting all things that come to us in life as being from the one true God, who are the psalmists that we read would have known as Yahweh, is actually a way of recognizing that there is no other divine power and no power that is divine. And so for the psalmist to attribute his afflictions to God was actually quite natural and an effort to obey the first commandment that there are actually no other gods before the one true God who is Yahweh. And so that's the first thing we should know. But the second thing we should realize is that there are many people today who still hold this view who still hold the view that we can, they continue to see the world as, as God's playground of control. A bit like a, a cosmic Gru with all of his minions that will bring good or ill to anyone in his mission to steal the moon. <laughs> in fact, the classic line of, of, that we hear today uh, for folks who hold on to this view is, whatever is supposed to happen will happen. 
Have you ever heard that? Have you ever said that? You see, this framework of seeing the world works really great as long as we're in a position of blessing and privilege, but it begins to break down and doesn't work so well for those who are in the midst of suffering. It takes the the highly faithful to go through suffering and still say, this is God's will, plan, and intention for me. And it becomes really difficult to explain to someone in the midst of, of tragedy that as they're facing that tragedy that it's happening because this was God's plan for their life or because God was trying to teach them a lesson. And so while our ancient brothers and sisters were seeking to obey the first command by ascribing all of life's events, whether good or ill, to God, we can look through the lens of Jesus, who is the full revelation of God, and know then that God is not the author or the agent behind our suffering. I want you to listen to some of the voices of the New Testament 1 John chapter 1, verse 5 says, God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. Notice that it doesn't say God is light most of the time, but sometimes he causes darkness when, he, when it aligns with his plan. <laughs> no, the scripture says God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 33, the apostle Paul says, God is not the author of of confusion. Going back again to 1 John, this time in chapter 4, verse 8, it says, God is love. God is love. That the defining characteristic of who God is is love, which means all the other things, all the other attributes that we attribute to God are not coming alongside of just the attribute of love, but rather central to who God is, is love. And so anytime we ascribe other characteristics to God, such as as holy and good and faithful, it is an outpouring of his love. It's, It's faithfulness evidenced by his love. Love is central. It's not just in the list of all the other things that we would attribute to God. God is is love. But perhaps more central to any of these proof texts is the reality that God couldn't possibly be doling out punishment for sin through suffering or causing evil to teach spiritual lessons. And we know this because Jesus took on our sin on the cross, suffered in our stead, and then defeated evil. (laughs) And so sin, evil, and darkness have been, in principle, already defeated. And the world, by the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, has been refounded on the axis of love. Our task is then to discover all the ways in which we can begin to live into this reality. And so as we look at the ring and the broken blade and the star glass and the book to see how they relate to one another, we we see that the psalmist talks about the anger of God and the wrath of God coming upon him because he assumed that this was, in fact, the reason for his physical suffering. But this doesn't answer the question about what what is the deal with the presence of enemies in this psalm. In verse 7 and 8, it mentions the presence of enemies, the enemy's involvement in his life. But notice that the enemies are not the cause of the affliction. That goes to God. That's credited to God. God is doing this as as pouring out his wrath against me. But the enemies are certainly agitators in his life. In fact, the ones that the psalmist calls his enemies are perhaps those who have seen his affliction, written him off as dead, and then reckoned, reckoned him as deserving of his misfortune. 
perhaps even sought to profit from his demise. And so for the psalmist, the ones that he describes as enemies are not those who, in the middle of his suffering, come alongside and support, but the ones who come alongside seeking to take advantage of his poor estate. And I would say certainly you and I would call, in, call an enemy of someone who did the same. That in our times of greatest vulnerability, they weren't there to lift us up and support us, but rather were there to, to bring harm, to take advantage. And so he calls them his enemies. And the story of Job certainly comes to mind. As Job faced all of his afflictions, many of his friends identify God as the cause of those afflictions, and they encourage Job to curse God and die. Now, in Job's case, because of all that he had gone through, he had nothing left. Uh, there was nothing left after if he were to die and, and leave his spoils to his friends or family. There was certainly nothing left. But it doesn't take a lot of imagination to see a scenario where a well-meaning but selfish friends and family sought to profit from a friend's death. And so they might say to them, God has brought this ill upon you. Curse him and die, and we will get your spoils. <laughs> But the psalmist in verse 10, in speaking about his enemies, verse 10 is the indictment against his enemies when it says that healing will come because the Lord God has heard him. And when he is returned to life, it will expose their disordered motivations. And he says, they will be put to shame. Verse 10 again says, all my enemies will be overwhelmed with shame and anguish. They will be put back and suddenly be put to shame. It's an exposing of their misordered motivations. But again, as, as we read this psalm through the lens of Christ, who is the full revelation of God, we are reminded that for us, instead of seeking to profit from the misfortune of others, we are to seek the healing and wholeness of others. And while that might be apparently obvious, and certainly all of us would say, no, I don't, I don't go, I don't swoop in and try to, uh, try to, uh, take advantage of the oppressed. I, I want us to just be discerning about maybe some of the small ways or systems that we're a part of that maybe are, are exploiting the oppressed and rather say that as the people of God, we are called then to work for the health, healing, and wholeness of others just as Christ has taken on our affliction upon himself so that we may be healed. And so if anything, it's a good reminder for us of how we ought to be as a people of God. And then, of course, there's the final mystery, the one last relic that we need to connect the dots to the rest of the psalm, and it's in verse 5. Verse 5, this, this, uh, this statement that says, Among the dead, no one proclaims your name, for who praises you from the grave? Uh, this, is a, this is one of those verses where you kind of ask, what does this have to do with anything? <laughs> Right? You know, it seems like this is a statement that's just floating out in midair and has no grounding to it. Uh, but more than that, the, the psalmist is saying that to die is to cease praising God. And again, here is an idea that when it comes upon our ears, seems so archaic to us and so far removed from how we see the world or understand the world, right? Because almost our entire theological system is built upon the rewards of death. 
In fact, we have so overemphasized this point uh, that our theological framework has mistakenly become one of escape where the goal of the Christian life is to get out of here. We've so overemphasized the rewards of death that our whole purpose and goal is to get out of this place. And so how foreign it sounds to us that when we read uh, that our praises cease at death. For death, we have come to believe, is when the praise party really starts. <laughs> in, fact, if, in fact, if the Apostle Paul were to read this psalm, as he no doubt did, uh, I wonder if he would respond by saying, wait a second, to die is to gain. And so the, the question remains, like, what are we supposed to do with a psalm that claims that death silences praise? When, when we know that those who die in Christ are brought into the, all the fullness of the presence of God and join with uh, all the heavenly realm in praising God together. And that's a fair question. Like, what do we do with this? I think, I think it can remind us, uh, again, we, like in order to understand the Psalms, we have to enter into their world. And if we enter into the world of, of the psalmist, we, we come to, to the realization and the good reminder for us that according to the, to the psalmist, life without worship is no life at all. That life without worship is no life at all. And I want to encourage us that let's not, let's not relegate worship to this narrow viewpoint of just music on a Sunday morning or, or music playing on our, on our uh, phones or CDs throughout the week that we, that we praise God to. It is certainly that. And music is such a great gift and means of worship. But worship is, is so much more than that as well. And according to the psalmist, if we enter into the, his mindset, if we enter into his world, uh, he, he makes this statement that to die is to cease praising God but because he understands that, that to him, a life without worship is no life at all. In fact, maybe, maybe even thousands of years ago when this was written, he, came, he, he had an understanding that part of what it means to be human Part of the human condition is to worship something or someone. That throughout all of human history, there, are, there is no time in which we collectively as a human race haven't participated in, in worshiping something or someone. That inherent to who we are is to connect ourselves to something or someone that is beyond, ours, beyond us. And so he says to cease Worship, to stop worshiping, is really no life at all. In other words, to live meant to offer praise to God for this psalmist, and failure to offer praise to God was, in fact, a form of death for him. And what's more important is that the psalmist is making this declaration in a time of anguish. In a time of anguish, he's reminding us that we must be continual in our praise to God, in our worship to God. And he's, he's in, his, in the midst of being physically ill to the point where he's weeping and crying and all of this stuff is going on. He's in deep anguish. And, he, and if you've ever had the flu or the stomach flu, you've been there, right? <laughs> and you're like, I think I'm going to die. <laughs> I think I might just die here. 
And he says, but God, oh, if I were to die, my praises would cease. I would lose an opportunity to speak praise about who you are and all that you've done. It's, and it's not just a loss of, he's understanding not just a loss of the opportunity to praise God, but also a, a disconnection from God, that God, if I were to die, I would lose you. And so you kind of sense this like desperate connection to who God is, and I think that's a really great reminder for us. Even though we have come to realize all that we know about the after, after death, which really isn't much, but we do know and have confidence based on the evidence of all of Scripture that we will enjoy the presence of God at death. And we've even exploded that to make the whole point to escape here, which I think is a mistake. But, but we recognize that the, the, to die is to gain, right? But when we read these words, I think it's a great reminder for us to say, oh God, even in the times of deepest anguish, we need to be caught up in the habit of praise. We need to be caught up in the habit of worship. In fact, I want to tell you a little bit about the, the etymology of the word Yahweh, which um, the, the generic form, God, probably wasn't in the vocabulary of the psalmist. It was, it was probably very specifically Yahweh, the God of Israel. But Yahweh comes from four Hebrew letters. And so our English, Yahweh, is, is a Hebrew word uh, with no vowels, it's a, it's a Y-H-W-H, or in Hebrew, yod heh vah Not Yoda, yod heh vah yod heh vah And the Hebrew mindset was that these four words were the sound of your breath. as you breathe in, yod, hey, vah, hey. That the, that the name for God was the sound of your breath. <laughs> Isn't that fascinating? And so in the ancient mindset, it was every single breath was the sound of and man, if we enter that world and we understand that mindset, we understand why David would say, to die is to cease praising God. Because I would no longer be speaking the name of God on my lips as I breathed. <laughs> Fascinating. And I think it just connects us to this really important reality First of all, that worship is far greater than, than what happens on Sunday morning or what happens in the music set. It, it, it's this all-encompassing thing, even down to our very breath. But then that we need to be also intentional in being, bringing praise to God. One of the things that we have done as a family is quite often in our mealtime prayer, uh, we will pray a prayer of thanksgiving. And we do that because mealtime prayers are kind of they're kind of tough, right? Like you feel obligated to do it, but you you want to eat, <laughs> and you're like, if I pray a long prayer, the food's going to get cold. And uh, I used to have a, a a friend who wasn't a believer, who, you know, said to me like, praying is not going to make it taste better, you know. 
And, and so like the mealtime prayer is like something that we all feel obligated to, but we're not quite sure what to do with, right? And so during our mealtime prayer, we decided, uh, and this is actually Amy's brilliant idea. She said, what if we just take this opportunity to pray a, a portion of a prayer of thanksgiving, and of course, we're thankful for the food and, and what really mealtime prayers are, are really a, a, a declaration of the provision of God, right? It's, God, you have provided this meal, and this meal is evidence of your goodness in my life. Uh, and so we've adopted praying this mealtime prayer, and we don't do it every time, but, but a lot of times we'll pray and we'll say, Lord, give us such an awareness of your mercies. You can also think there the word gifts. Give us such an awareness of your gifts that with truly thankful hearts we would show forth your praise, not only with our lips, but also with our lives as we give ourselves over to your service. And then we eat. But for us, that was just something intentional that we wanted to do to just begin a pattern of praise and thanksgiving in our life so that we wouldn't ever cease worshiping God, so that we could have a terrible day. We could be going through really a whole bunch of, let's just be honest, crap in life, right? Some of you aren't going to be happy that I said that, but that's okay. We go through a lot, right? Life can be really hard sometimes, and as we're in the, right in the middle of it, we can just pause for a time of, of a mealtime prayer and say, oh God, would you give me such an awareness of your gifts Draw the scales from my eyes so that I could see in the midst of all the pain and the suffering and the difficulty and, and the tragedy that here's all the good things that are happening. Give me such an awareness of your mercies that with a truly thankful heart I would show forth your praise not only with my lips and the ways that I talk and the ways that I join my voice with the heavenly choirs and sing but also with my life as I give myself over to your service. I think that's a really great way to just stay connected to a consistent habit of praise in our life. And so I would encourage us this morning, church, from Psalm chapter 6. As we have entered into this familiar but strange world of the Psalms, to recognize that whatever you're going through, and regardless of how difficult it may be, God is not the causing agent behind it. But God is the author of all good gifts. And he's working to bring health and wholeness and healing to you in the middle of your situation. And even in the middle of the anguish, if that's where we're at, even in the middle of the anguish, may we be quick to offer praise to God. And may the scales draw up, fall from our eyes so that we may give in May, we may be given perspective to see the goodness of who God is. And may we take opportunities to breathe in the goodness of God and the goodness of life. And so I encourage you. May you come to church with an attitude of expectation that God will meet you here. May you enter your workplaces with the knowledge that God goes before you. May you invest time in your family with the encouragement that God is in your midst. And may you be given eyes to see the good things God is doing and be quick to offer him praise. Amen? Amen.